Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Great news this week on the vaccine front. Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine candidate has been shown to be 90% effective in early findings. The vaccine is a two-shot protocol given three weeks apart, and they're still waiting on more data, but they could possibly apply for an emergency use authorization before the end of November. For more on the latest vaccine news, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. So the way this works is they vaccinate a bunch of people and then wait for them to get sick. And there are different kind of moments at which they take a look at the data. The companies don't have access to the data. As time goes on, it's an independent board that knows half the participants are in a placebo group and half aren't. And so they have to wait to look and see, did more people get infected in the placebo group versus the non-placebo group, the active vaccine group? And that's what happened in this case. The vaccine was 90% effective at preventing infection in those people who got the vaccine. In this first batch of data, it seemed like only 94 trial participants actually came down with COVID-19. Is that right? Yes. And that's what they do. They Originally, they were going to give us results at 32 participants, but they decided to go to over 90 just for more, more assurance. And they'll stop at 164 because at that point, once there have been that many infections, they're 90 percent sure that the vaccine will be effective. When we were hearing about all the development and when things get approved and all, they were saying that if something is 50 to 60 percent effective, then that would be even good enough to get some type of authorization. So this is a lot better than that. And the two doses that they were given are given uh, three weeks apart, right? That's true for the Pfizer vaccine. It's different for the other vaccines. But yes, that's right. So what's the reaction been so far? I know President-elect Joe Biden has said some stuff on this. President Trump has also weighed in on this. What's the reaction for all of it? Everybody's ecstatic. Uh, I mean, it literally couldn't be any better. There's no such thing as a 100% effective vaccine. So 90% probably won't be that effective in the real world. People are sicker than they are when they're trial participants or have other things going on. They wait too long. Other things, life intervenes. But a number like this couldn't be any better. I just hung up with a doctor who said he called his parents and said, I have the first really good news in nine months for you um, talking about this result. (laughs) That's great. Now, a couple of interesting things on this. This particular vaccine candidate uses the mRNA and no product like this has ever been approved by regulators. So this would be a first if this goes all the way through and gets that authorization. It's new technology that luckily was under development before covid for other conditions. And when COVID came along, all they really need to do is plug in the genetic code and they have a new vaccine for a new disease. And that's what they did in this case. And that's why they were able to turn it so quickly and bring it to the public so quickly. So they're waiting for a little bit more data. They're saying that maybe by the end of this month, they can already put in the request for an emergency use authorization. So today's data was effectiveness data. What they're still waiting for is safety data. And what the FDA has required is that they have to, at least, no, median of half of the people have to have been out two months from their vaccine. So if you're going to have a side effect from a vaccine, it's most likely to happen in the first six weeks. And so they wanted to get a cushion beyond that, more than half the people in the trial beyond that point. And they will hit that in the third week of November. 
the other interesting part of this particular vaccine candidate, that it was not necessarily part of Operation Warp Speed. The federal government didn't pay to help develop this particular vaccine candidate. And beyond that, the amount of doses that they're expected to produce, what do we know about that? The federal government has paid for five other vaccines under development to bring them to the point of clinical trials and through clinical trials. Pfizer said, we've got this. We don't need your money for that. But they have taken almost or been promised almost $2 billion for making doses of the vaccine. The companies say that they can have 50 million doses before the end of this year and over a billion next year. And that's the hard part, too, is getting enough doses uh, for people to get their shots. And especially it's the two shot protocol. So you need twice as many, really, for every person. Finally, where do we stand on some of the other vaccine candidates? I know Moderna is said to have some news pretty soon. And, and then obviously we have a few others that are already in phase three trials. Moderna, their first interim result, it was supposed to be around now in the next week or two. It may be pushed off if they wait for more results like Pfizer did. But we were expected to hear around now from Moderna. Um, Novavax, which is another federally funded vaccine project, they should be able to start phase three in the next couple of weeks. AstraZeneca, which is collaborating with Oxford University, they're in phase three, Johnson & Johnson, Sanofi, um, but they haven't started phase three trials. Yeah, well, I mean, all in all, great news on this front. So we'll see how this develops. It it seems like it's going to start happening really fast. And then it'll take some time still to get all those vaccine doses out to the public. But we're on our way. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. How will the country's response to the coronavirus pandemic change now that Joe Biden will come into power? The Biden-Harris campaign has already announced a COVID advisory board with a plan that includes more of a national strategy. This means more testing, a national mask mandate, and the possibility of more lockdowns, which no one wants. For more on Biden's coronavirus plan, we'll speak to Noah Higgins-Dunn, reporter at CNBC. So early in the pandemic, when it came to gathering the materials, building the testing capacities, uh, getting the personal protective equipment uh, like face masks, shields, that was all up to the state. And how much they closed or reopened was also up to the state. So Biden's plan calls for a greater national strategy uh, that really creates like a uniform um, guideline for all of those states to follow. So really, a big part of Biden's plan is to put the health experts back up front, front and center, um, get the politics out of it. So that was really, I think, key with that announcement on Monday when he announced that advisory panel I'm really making it clear that he is not going to be the one who's really directing this. It's going to be the health experts, and that's who he's listening to. Um, and so I think it was really important for him to do that, really. And I think that was a big step. It was the first thing he did, really, through his transition after he was announced president-elect on Saturday. So one thing that my uh, sources say is that Trump actually did well was early in the coronavirus response. He held those press briefings with the coronavirus task force where you could hear them speak about COVID and about its dangers and what should and what people should do. Uh, and then those kind of faded away. They, they uh, turned into more of Trump just going up there and holding his own press briefing. We didn't see uh, Dr. Deborah Burks or Anthony Fauci anymore. Uh, they made some press appearances, but never at the White House. So it sounds like Biden wants to do daily briefings again and have the scientists lead it. Uh, And so I would expect that those people who he announced on Monday would be leading that charge. 
A little more on the national strategy. He wants to do a lot more testing, double the number of drive through sites, at least 10 per state, and invest more in at-home test kits. He wants to give more money for contact tracing. And then the interesting one, you know, calling for a national mask mandate, which would be really tough to implement. But, you know, he said that if he can't do something there, he's going to go to the governors. And if beyond the governors, he can't get something done, he's going to go even more local, get into mayors and county executives to institute more local mandates. So that's going to be a tough one to get through. But at least he's got a plan of kind of how he wants to approach it. Right. So he can't do a couple of things. He can require them in federal buildings, um, require them at, you know, airports um, and, you know, train stations, things like that. Uh, but the mask mandate really will be still state-driven as it has been. Uh, we have this hodgepodge of mask mandates throughout the country, and it's varying in terms of its enforcement. And so his goal is to try to go to those states and cities and ask them to do it. And if Say the governor doesn't want to institute a mask mandate, which some have said that they don't want to. He'll go to localities to ask them to do it. But really, what we also saw on Monday um, when he announced the advisory committee was how much of importance he put on masks, which uh, President Trump really has not done uh, throughout this entire response. There was a, a point in time when he did acknowledge the importance of masks, but of course he held his rallies where people didn't wear them, um, didn't really speak of them again. Um, Biden took a totally different approach. He's, you know, he's saying like, we can save American lives if we all wear masks. And that was uh, clear on Monday. The Biden plan would also want to get the CDC more involved with guidance on when to close businesses or reopen them as well. You know, schools, same thing like that. And then he also wanted to repair the relationship with the WHO. I know President Trump was not sending uh, as much money to them, things like that. Tell me a little bit about that as well. Yeah, so the Trump administration wanted to cancel our ties with the WHO. It wasn't formal this year. Uh, it would have been a next year event. And so now that Joe Biden is president-elect, that likely will not happen. Uh, the WHO, in the meantime, has been trying to get different countries around the globe to sign up for their global vaccine initiative. That's something the U.S. has said under the Trump administration that it does not plan on joining However, President-elect Biden has shown interest in gathering the G7 countries um, to try to create a plan to ensure that um, other countries have equitable access to a vaccine. And so you can see just through his plan that he wants to put that as a priority as well. Um, and he wants to rejoin the WHO. I thought something that was interesting in Biden's plan that he uh, highlighted there was that our relationship isn't really perfect with them. Um, and that's something that the Trump administration has really voiced concern about throughout this pandemic is that they think that the World Health Organization um, is to blame for this pandemic for not showing or saying how severe it was when it was coming from China. Um, and so we'll see. That'll be an interesting um, development under Biden and how he plans to navigate a relationship with them. But yes, to your point about the CDC instituting those guidelines, it sounds like the reopenings would still be on a state-by-state -state level. However, the CDC is going to have a much larger role in advising states and localities on what they should be doing and how they should be um, placing restrictions on, on group size and, and business closures um, when the virus is getting out of control in their area. And he wants to create a national dashboard where people can go to and see how bad the coronavirus is in their specific zip code 
which is not something that we've had so far throughout this pandemic that's been up to the states to develop. And some have done a really good job about being very transparent with the data and some have not. And finally, Pfizer on Monday also released some information saying their vaccine candidate is 90% effective. So that could get authorization pretty soon. And then comes the really hard part, rolling it out. It's still going to take many months to get it to the general public. So, you know, we have Operation Warp Speed in place, but Biden will have to kind of continue that basically to really help distribute everything. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Pfizer had some really promising news on Monday about the effectiveness of the vaccine. Um, Biden applauded them for that. Um, And it is exciting, but, you know, you bring up a good point. When Biden takes office, we'll be in the initial stages of really rolling out this vaccine, hopefully. Um, And Operation Warp Speed has said that they hope to roll out uh, about 300 million doses by uh, January of next year. And so Biden will really be inheriting that program. And states are concerned Um, They've actually already submitted plans to the CDC on how they will inoculate uh, the people of their state. Um, However, you know, I think one term that somebody's thrown out has said that it's more like a wish list without funding um, because they haven't really received much funding uh, for these plans. And various associations have called for more than eight billion to fund them even though they've only gotten a couple hundred million from HHS so far. So the Biden plan calls for $25 billion for vaccine development and distribution. Um, so that would guarantee that um, those, those plans are funded and it gets to every American cost-free. But you're right, it, it would be a continuation of uh, Operation Warp Speed under President Trump. Um, and, and they have invested uh, over $10 billion on the development of the vaccine so far. Noah Higgins-Dunn, reporter at CNBC covering coronavirus. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A bit of concerning news when it comes to jobs. More than 2 million women have dropped out of the labor force as of October. And one of the big reasons is that virtual schooling is causing moms to quit. Having to make tough choices between paying for childcare or working, many women with school-aged children are staying home. For more on how the pandemic has hit working women, we'll speak to Heather Long, economics correspondent at The Washington Post. This was dubbed the she session over the summer, and initially that made sense. We just look around our own communities. We can see a lot of these restaurants emptying out, hotels, entertainment, hair salons, places that tended to employ more women, and particularly women of color than men. And so it wasn't a huge surprise that we saw initially women get harder hit. But what you're talking about and what really piqued my interest is what happened in September. We started to see this big divergence between men and women in September. And what happened is basically as schools started up again, and many of them were hybrid or virtual distance learning, whatever you want to call it, it wasn't working for families. And the person who had to end up generally doing this was the mom. And so there, as you pointed out, the fewest women working since 1988, we saw over 800,000 women drop out of the labor force. So they stopped working or stopped looking for a job in September alone. And when October rolled around, sometimes you think, oh, was that just a fluke, one month fluke? Nope. When October rolled around, men, particularly dads, had basically fully gained any of their losses from September, which were much, much less steep. And moms, women are still very much 
struggling to get back to work and get back to jobs. And in particular, what we're seeing is moms of elementary age kids, so ages 6 to 12. Basically, it makes sense. Your kindergartner and first grader cannot do virtual learning on their own. Right. They need that constant supervision. And you spoke to a bunch of women on this particular thing, and they had a lot of tough decisions to make. You can pay for childcare, but in a lot of cases, people were saying, well, it just doesn't outweigh the cost. I mean, I will probably make less going out and working and paying more for somebody to take care of the children rather than just doing it myself. And, and that was a lot of what you were hearing. And it's heartbreaking. I was thinking of an unemployed woman. I spoke to Courtney Allen in upstate New York, substitute teacher, lost her job like many in the spring, and she desperately needs the money. These unemployment payments, she still receives them, but it's barely enough to cover her rent. And she's got a kindergartner and a first grader, two young boys, one of whom has the ADD, ADHD, which makes it even harder to sit there and a computer all day learning. And you know, she said to me, I, I have no good options. I need the money. I need to go back to work. But who's going to watch my kids? My kids right now are in a program that is distance learning. And so it's a terrible situation to be in. And we're hearing that over and over again. She's a single mom, but it's also playing out in two parent families where it's often the mom who is ending up having to take a step back, scale back work or scale back hours. And so what's happening now is a lot of people are hoping for more stimulus to be approved by Congress so this money could either be used for child care services or just continue supporting the families. And it's really important because women that take time off for child care and all that stuff, historically, it's harder for them to get back into the workforce after you've been out of it for some time. So that's another issue. I, I, you know, we talk about the constant effects of the pandemic and, you know, men seem to take more of it on the health side. They're getting sicker in more severe cases and dying in, in higher numbers. But on the economic side, it's harder for women to recover that way. It definitely is. And unfortunately, we have a lot of good data on this from the past Great Recession and from the past really 20 years. And what we found over and over again is when women take a year off to watch children, it has severe repercussions for their careers. It's not only harder to get back in, but they almost never earn as much money as they did before. You know, they have lower social security, lower retirement savings. So it just compounds for the rest of their life in a very negative way. So this is both a real pain for these families like Courtney Allen's who are struggling financially right now, but it's also a detractor overall for the U.S. economy. Ultimately, our economy grows when we have more workers and we've been trying to get more women into the workforce. The United States already before the pandemic lagged well behind countries like Canada, Germany, even Japan, and how many women we have working. So we were already way behind. Now we're even further back. I mean, it's just one part of the larger equation, but it's a very critical one to get our American women working more and getting kids back to school. Obviously, that's a big component as well. But, you know, we're all waiting for vaccines. We're waiting for other therapeutics. It's going to take some time, but it is a critical part of that equation. Heather Long, economics correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.